HashiCast from HashiCorp. Welcome to HashiCast, navigating cloud adoption for C-suites. The podcast dedicated to empowering C-suite executives as they navigate the complexities of cloud adoption. Welcome to Cloud Navigator. I'm Christian Riley, Field CTO here at HashiCorp. I'm joined as usual by my co-host and fellow Field CTO here in EMEA, Sarah Poland. Hi all. Hello, Sarah. And also we have the pleasure of being joined today by James Footman, who is our HashiCorp Recruiting Manager here in EMEA. Good afternoon, great to be here. Good afternoon, James. Thanks for joining us. So today's episode, we're going to be talking about people and more specifically how we can overcome the skills gap. I think if we look around the industry and things that we read and things that we see, there's kind of an interesting dichotomy emerging, which is on one hand, we're seeing you know a number of reductions around different technology companies. And on the other hand, we're constantly aware of the fact that we don't have enough skilled people to fill the technology and IT jobs that we have. So we're going to talk a little bit about that again today. And really what we wanted to do was sort of highlight the importance of addressing the skills gap and especially the skills gap in cloud technologies for the C-suite audiences. And we're going to set the stage for discussing some strategies on how you can attract, motivate, and most importantly, retain the talent. So let's dive right into it. James, I'm going to throw this over to you. You know, one of the episodes recently, we talked about our cloud survey, the state of cloud strategy, which we've done over the last few years here at HashiCorp. And one of the things that came out of that, and it's really interesting, you know, because not only is it a technology survey and we're trying to figure out where people are in the adoption, but one of the things that came back on that was, and in fact, it was the number one inhibitor to even more progress was the skills gap. You sit in a very interesting seat, obviously, trying to find the best people for us to attract and retain here at HashiCorp. What challenges do you see in your everyday role? How do you think about the challenge of talent itself? And what can organizations do to really address that? And how can we sort of close that gap in a meaningful way? One of the the most forefront challenges that we see is competition in the market okay it might have changed recently with the layoffs but but one of the most consistent themes for the last two and a half years has been competition you know different vendors hyperscalers large FTSE organizations are all looking for what we call top talent how do you differentiate from your competitors or from the other organizations i think is a big challenge that faces everyone from an industry perspective, we do look at trying to hire perfection. Hit the ground running is, is something you hear quite a lot when you're especially scaling up or, or pre-IPO is, you know, there isn't that that runway uh, necessarily uh, for people to develop. So just out of curiosity, how important is it to be able to come in and hit the ground running? And in terms of long-term investment and what an individual might bring to the organization, is that the most important trait to have for an organization? Or do you see that there are other things also that bring value to a particular candidate? It's something that people strive towards, but I'm not sure how attainable it is, to be perfectly honest. I think for any organization that you're going to have to join, there is going to be an onboarding period. Looking at, at, at some of the recent studies, it takes 12 months for somebody to become uh, kind of operationally efficient, especially in the tech vendors. So is hit the ground running a realistic expectation um, within the market? And as, as TA, that's our responsibility to, to go back to the hiring leaders and ask the questions about what does that look like? What about if we find 
individuals that maybe don't match like for like a job description, but but talk to to having excellent interpersonal skills, curiosity, uh, a desire to learn. They, these are two things that I've heard on 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 quite a few roundtables recently uh, from leaders of major tech organisations of of successful hires. Is actually let's look at the the attitude of of individuals and and their commitment to learning uh, and curiosity has been a greater success. I don't know many industries that evolve at the pace of the one we're in. So I've always sort of wondered about how practical it is to bring somebody in and say, hey, you know, we want you to do this widget making versus we want you to come in and evolve at the pace of technology. How, how do you think through that, James? I think one of the ways is is working with the hiring leaders to, to understand, you know, where is the team now? What voices, what skill sets do you have in the team? Where do you want the team to be? What's the end goal? As you said, nothing moves as fast as technology. And that's how we we look to plug the gaps is is get them to think holistically about their team. What skills, what voices, what experience, what backgrounds would would help take your team to that next level rather than hiring, you know, what we've been hiring for the for the last two years or, or hiring from certain companies or certain schools. How do we forward think this? Think strategically about how this team is made up. So I, I talked to anybody that will listen over the, well, it feels like an eternity actually about how interesting my observation has become around people processing technology I, I first came across that probably i don't know age myself here but it must be at least 25 years ago where in the context of change and evolution and the implementation of different technologies we always used to talk about those three points of the iron triangle around you know everything is around people process and technology and in the middle of that you know there's work process and there's culture and a bunch of other stuff if i kind of think about where we are today in the evolution of and i'm going to throw this to you sarah actually because we're very fortunate in our roles to engage with a lot of senior folks in different organizations and it's easy to draw stuff on a whiteboard, right? I mean, you know, I spent half my career as, as an architect drawing things on a whiteboard and saying, hey, you know, I think we should go do this. But when that turns into a work stream or work streams or a set of things that you have to go do, it seems that the options to do that are literally limitless and there's no right or wrong way to do things. And if I'm thinking about this from a C-suite perspective, I'm thinking about it from how do I set a direction which says, hey, you know, we need to move to cloud. We need to, you know, be more efficient. We need to be faster. We need to improve our time to market. We need to improve our reliability. They're all easy things to draw as bullet points on a whiteboard. But when you look at the existing talent in an organization and we're looking to augment that talent, well, the kind of conversations you have with the senior folks in our customers or in organizations across the world where they're interested in how can I, as a leader in that organization, support and motivate those cloud teams? What do I have to look for? What do I have to do? I, well, so this is a really interesting question for me because I was approached very recently by um, a leader within one of the major CSPs. And their question was, we know that you've built out teams that were quite non-traditional at the base. How did you do that? And how do you qualify those metrics to do that? And a lot of that boils down to psychology and understanding the psychology behind different people and how they function. So one of my absolutely favorite teams that I built was really this kind of weird patchwork of people. We had a former teacher, we had a psychologist, an architect, an actual like physical building architect. We had somebody who was an autodidact hacker. We had the wunderkind who was just straight out of school. And then myself, for those of you who don't know, I'm a former opera singer. What we were able to accomplish because of how we viewed problems in a different sort of capacity was really quite amazing. And we were probably one of the more performant teams within the bank. 
So for those of you who understand the financial services world, understand that it's an incredibly slow moving sort of ecosystem and environment because it's quite risk adverse. But we were able to look at these problems and really solve them on the fly. So it added a lot of value to the organization in and of itself. And then we were able to also say, okay, this is kind of that blueprint. Look at the different types of personalities. If you have a teacher, that teacher is going to know pedagogically how to impart all of that knowledge on the rest of the team. That is incredibly beneficial because the team feels like they're being supported and they're gaining knowledge. And for the organization, they are gaining knowledge. And that's something that they can pass on and then move into different teams when you decide maybe you want to shift the dynamic of the team or something like that. So when I go and talk to various C-suite members, I typically will bring them that example and give them an idea of how all of these things kind of fit together. And it's very much a cube. It's not something that you can look at and say, okay, they have this skill, this skill, this skill, and this skill, but you want to see how is that personality going to fit together with another personality and what does their background bring to the team that when they're engineering and developing, they're going to make a product that's a better product and a more holistic product, fewer errors, more innovation that brings the organization better time to market and more opportunities to kind of capture the essence and um, make sure that you're really innovating and bringing value in. The other thing I think is really interesting is I saw a statistic from McKinsey that said for every headcount that's left open, it's more or less a million dollars in revenue or potential revenue that is unattained. So the longer we leave these spots open, not only are we losing revenue in terms of expansion and innovation, but we're also just losing revenue because they stagnate. So I think if we really want to keep things moving and advancing, looking at how do we build these teams that are a little bit different and really have, like James said, that idea of curiosity and investment in the organization as opposed to checkbox exercise, because those people know they're unicorns. They know that they're going to get hired by any number of organizations and they can leave for one minute to the next. So how do we build teams that are really comprehensive and moving? So I'm going to use you, Sarah, in the nicest possible way as the, the poster child or poster person of diversity. So for those who didn't quite catch what Sarah said, and I always have to kind of pinch myself when she says this, <laughs> you were an opera singer by trade. I don't think we've got long enough on this podcast to explain how you ended up being a, a, field, a field CTO at one of the world's <laughs> leading infrastructure software companies from being an opera singer. So I think that's a podcast entirely for itself. But we can do that. I, I, I think your point around diversity and diversity of thought and diversity of experience is a, is a really, really important one. I'm going to make a strong statement to James here and say that, you know, I think if we were to be honest, we would say that the ways in which we've done talent attraction and talent management in the past probably don't fit the way that we're going to have to do it in the future. You know, and there's another famous adage that goes something like, you know, if you always do what you always did, then you'll always get what you always got, right? So I think it's fair to say that we have to evolve and we have to change this. So keeping diversity, you know, as one of the angles there, and I'm, and I'm sure, James, you come across this in your strategic planning and the way that you think about it from a hashi perspective, but just taking that to sort of a bigger picture and outside of, of ourselves for a moment, what do you think that organizations can do practically? You know, what strategies can they implement and what paths can they go down that helps to you know, attract and retain the top talent from areas that may not necessarily come from pure technology backgrounds? You know, picking up on Sarah's 
own experience and, and some of the comments that she made there in terms of the diversity uh, being a sort of a key factor going forward? From a, you know, if we look at, at HashiCorp in particular, we've got a, we've got a, a robust early and career program predominantly based out of the US. And if we, if we just look at some of the figures and statistics that come from that, you know, 50% female intake uh, of the last class, 62% underrepresented groups from 33 different schools. As you can see from that sample size, just the difference in, in experiences that that's going to bring at that early in career level. I think if we look at the, the current climate as well from a macro uh, economic standpoint, the cost of the business is less. But then we've also got the, the non-traditional backgrounds. So, you know, if we look at certain different areas, we're looking outside of maybe tech. We're looking at, at other other backgrounds. You know, the, the retail space, um, you know, has some good skill sets that can be cross-transferable. There's also government-funded schemes, specifically in the UK, that you can be involved in that are from the apprenticeship levy to the skills revolutions. And there are also um, there's, there's a, a couple of very good charities that help people get back to work as well. So there are a plethora of different levers to pull. I think you've got to be brave. If you hire the same, you've got to expect the same outcomes, but you've got to be brave to to, to break the mold and, and potentially take a risk. It may be perceived to be a risk to to Sarah's point to to hire the team that that she put built, uh, you know put together of a, a teacher that the wonder kid, the DevOps coder. You know, some people may be you know looking at, at that as a, as a big risk and and stay in the comfort zone. So I think you've got to be brave with your hiring strategy as well and be prepared to to really lean in and help develop and make the individual successful as well. How would you encourage somebody to take those risks, James? If we think of HashiCorp, we've, we've got a, a foundation now of a critical mass of employees that we can draw from experiences and, and, and understand what works well, both from a talent development perspective and also from um, just a, a career progression perspective. But equally using statistics like you just mentioned there around a million dollars uh, is 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 the value of an unfilled hire you know we've we've all had the conversations of sometimes we look for unicorns but if we hire somebody or bring somebody into the business and help really lean in and de- develop that individual will they become more successful quicker than the time that we've got the role open to to look for that really small skill set that is available in the market so it's having those conversations about, okay, what do you really value? What is most important to you about this person? Are you looking to create, what culture are you looking to create within your team? Because that's not just going to be potentially certain bullet points on a job description. It's going to be the diversification of skill sets, the diversification of thoughts, uh, the diversification of, of experience. Yeah. I think that really echoes what one of the customers I was speaking with recently said in terms of you know, this position's been left open now for almost a year because we wanted to do a checkbox hire, but that's no longer feasible. So now the question is, do you hire somebody who can grow into that role relatively quickly or do you continue to hold firm and do that checkbox exercise in terms of making sure they have all of the required attributes to hit the ground running? I think Christian mentioned retention as well. Post-COVID, we've had the great resignation. So where there was a lot of movement in the market. So really candidate dominant and then it shifted a little bit to people became a little bit more cautious calling it the great staycation Uh, so people were staying where they were and then I I read Gartner a a couple of months ago we're talking about the great reflection you know what what are people really looking for from a business and and purpose was was probably one of the major ones purpose and feeling valued you know if you hire somebody and, and, and invest in their personal development 
and you create that sense of purpose and you create that that value from that that individual that will likely be be repaid in you know the tenure that they stay because uh, it is definitely a major factor that that sense of belonging that sense of purpose mm-hmm. and development is is absolutely one of the ways that companies can help with that that's james mentioned the c word before um culture i, I want to just poke on that a little bit and something that you also mentioned james there about what is it that individuals look for i'll give you the backdrop to why i'm going to ask this right it was a few years ago now where um, when i was at citrix we were talking to a big customer about this very topic right and they were trying to figure out how to modernize their it environment for want of a better word with things that were more easy to use or more modern or sort of fit the demand of the employees that they were trying to to attract or you know future employees that were trying to attract and this is a major major global company i spoke to their head of hr because what was interesting at the time when when people were talking about digital transformations the subtext to that in a business was not only change and it goes back to the iron triangle it wasn't only the technology and and the and the people but the process you know how can we actually improve our work process so that it fits how people prefer to work, right? And and that could be anything from what device they wanted to use to what applications they were familiar with to the working hours and all, all that sort of stuff. And I remember the head of HR, because they were part of a working group, actually in this organization, they had a multi-pronged working group that was not just driving digital transformation, but was trying to drive what they called new ways of working, where the technology was only part of it and the people were part of it and the process was part of it. So there was a fa- fairly holistic approach to sort of changing the organization. Mm-hmm. And I remember her saying something to me that stuck with me to this very day. And she said, the challenge that we have at the moment is that the candidates are interviewing us. And I sat back and I thought, wow, the candidates are interviewing us, meaning that there was competition between organizations for that candidate and who could provide the best outcome for the candidate was going to ultimately win their employeeship or whatever the right word is. And we went on to talk about Daniel Pink, and I'm I'm sure people listening to the podcast are familiar with the the famous book that Daniel Pink wrote that was called Drive. And it goes something, you know, along the lines of that most people that are out there um, who are in, you know, businesses or, or hiring people believe that the best way to motivate people to either join or to stay is with re- rewards that are financial, right? So you kind of like the traditional carrot and stick approach. You know, you do a better job, here's some more money. And so he went on to assert that really it's it's satisfaction and high performance is really, to Sarah's point, it's a deeply human thing. And the requirement for organizations to connect culturally with employees that exist or potential employees is actually more important than, you know, the standard things that we think about around remuneration, total compensation, you know, money, bonuses or whatever, right? So if you think about that from a cultural change perspective, and, and you know, we kind of accept, again, that we said that we're going to have to do some some things differently. How do you think organizations can address and change a culture so that it, you know, kind of nurtures the talent acquisition, the talent development, the retention, the productivity, and actually makes people have a sense of purpose not only about joining the organization, but then staying there longer than, you know, the couple of years that that is the expectation. I think the motives there, Daniel Pink spoke about kind of finances. and But I think post-COVID, what individuals are looking for has kind of fluctuated candidly. And you're right about the the interview. It's a 50-50 process. I always say that to, to my team. It's, it's as much 
the inter the interviewees interviewing us as well as us interviewing them changing jobs is is a, is a major part of someone's life uh, so we, when we create our interview plans it's to qualify candidates in first and foremost rather than disqualify we want to learn more about them whilst also giving them the necessary information uh, that they that they require but but on the the kind of motivators i think we saw post covid that flexibility and and that kind of autonomy of work linkedin did a global survey uh, and those were one and two in terms of importance to individuals uh, and that's shifted back a little bit to be perfectly honest to finances given the the climate right now it's the number one question that we are facing you know when we're interviewing candidates it's you know what's the salary what's the benefits etc we are at a, a, an interesting point of inception uh, around kind of how do you build your teams and create your culture? Is it is it that remote first? Is it hybrid? Is it building communities? I candidly don't have the answer, but I think it'll be interesting to see how companies evolve uh, and, and follow that because the drivers are changing. The workforce is changing as well. I think we spoke earlier about, I think 10, 11 years ago, when I first got into technology recruitment and, and, and hyperscaling, the average tenure would have been about four years. And, and if somebody had been moving around within that four years, that would be one of the questions is, is, is how come you've potentially jumped around a lot? Whereas now it's it's 18 months to two years is, is, is pretty much the norm. So we need to change the way that we think, you know, individuals are moving more frequently, whether that is because of the culture or, or the the pace that technology is evolving at and they want to be at the forefront of tech it remains to be seen but i I think we are at a really interesting point from that perspective and the candidate and job market perspective i found something interesting the other day um again from mckinsey that was saying that of all of the layoffs only seven percent of those were in emea um and so that fundamentally our job market hasn't shifted quite as much people are a little bit more wary and more certain about or want to be more certain about where they go but they were talking about how if within the EMEA region, we want to start filling some of those gaps that we do need to start looking towards diversity um, and filling that with some of these more non-traditional workers, I guess. But then to that point as well, they were saying that the culture really plays a massive part in that. And I think myself for one, you know, I have two kids, I'm a single mom, so I need that flexible work life. I will give my all to my employer and make sure that everything gets done. But if the school calls, being able to have that flexibility to me is invaluable or being able to pick up, you know, a school field trip or something like that. So, you know, I really echo what you say, James, in terms of it's not about just the pure benefits anymore in the financial package. It's really about what is this going to bring to my life and how is it going to elevate my further purpose as I move forward in my career as well. So one of the other things, James, I wanted to touch on, and I guess it sort of transcends some of the conversation we've had relative to, you know, how do you identify the right candidates and whatever. And and I think, you know, if we look back over the past probably 10, 15 years with the emergence of candidate tracking systems and all the kind of things that you probably deal with with every day, I would suspect from many of my own experiences and my my conversations with others that we've tended to lean on the educational aspect more than the vocational aspect probably too much and interestingly you know we kind of as an industry we sit around and lament all these difficulties in finding people and whatever and yet you know the bar that we set for them to get through automated systems has been perhaps a little bit too high you know and certainly there are plenty of jobs in the world that require degree level education and there are plenty that don't right and i would also say that there are plenty in technology if you think about it through the entire gamut of 
product management, product design, customer success. I mean, it goes on and on and on, right? And, and, and I think, you know, what's been pleasing certainly to me because I'm a big fan of level playing fields is more and more organizations are dropping the requirement. I mean, and I mean, some of the biggest technology companies in the world, the behemoths that have been around forever, which their entire talent strategy historically has been predicated upon, you know, which university did you come from? And then I'll ask you the rest of the questions. I know that obviously countries within EMEA where we are, you know, Germany and others have invested heavily in sort of more divergent paths than pure academia, you know, kind of whether that's technology paths or apprenticeship paths or a combination of those things. I'd, I'd be fascinated to get your view on, you know, where you think that's heading. I think if we if we always look at the same university recruiting pool, yeah, sure, we're going to get great candidates from that. But, you know, I have a feeling from my own experiences that we've missed or we potentially miss out on a lot of other really, really good candidates who may not have the opportunity through whatever reasons, you know, be those personal or be those financial or whatever, you know, to, to go and take on huge amounts of debt or, you know, whatever else to get to ultimately a piece of paper that would get you through a candidate tracking system. I, I just feel that there's a there's a shift happening. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. It's something that got posed to me a couple of weeks ago. So I've been kind of doing a little bit of research on it and going out to external job boards, 80, 90% of, of engineer DevOps cloud roles still stipulate, you know, a degree somewhere in the in the job description. Um, and I think about, you know, 80, 90% of those roles are listed as senior as well. So in a in in the world that we live in, I, I think we have to adapt both as as from a talent acquisition perspective in terms of of how we source and the applicant tracking systems and and some of the scoring systems that that are in place, but also how we we see what success looks like. So, I think we could have a a whole different podcast on the schooling system and how it doesn't necessarily suit everybody. Uh, I think we know that now more and more, and especially in a world where we've got open access to open source technologies different vocations, different um, different ways of learning. I, I, I think we may move away from, from that. Um, just having to, you know, pure play and entry level will be you need a degree. I think in terms of how we've adapted as a team, I think GitHub is a, is a great source of looking at individuals' work without necessarily knowing if they've got a degree or not. You, you can look at the, the, the code and, and some of the tech writing that they're doing there. Uh, and we encourage that as a, as a source rather than maybe just sticking to the, the, the applications, et cetera. So I do think we need to evolve. Uh, we're already seeing that shift. As you said, you know, the behemoths are, all, are already realizing that absolutely degrees are, are very helpful. Um, but, you know, there are there is great talent that out there that doesn't necessarily have a degree. And, and I'll throw it back to, to both of you, both of you, Sarah, and and Christian, you probably worked with individuals as well that, that maybe haven't had a degree. This one for me is always a bit of a touchy subject. And obviously I'm biased being that my initial degree is not in computer science. And the effect of that is that either I don't apply to positions, just cold apply, or I do everything in my power to go via via somebody. Because I know that simply because of what my CV looks like, I will be eliminated. It's changing a little bit more in my benefit the bias is swinging a little bit in the opposite direction because I am a woman in tech, because I am a female executive. But, you know, having that in the back of your mind and actively going about your job search like that, I think it does an injustice to the field, to be perfectly honest. And we need to figure out how we can curtail this a little bit so that we don't miss good people to your to your point, Christian. Because I know we lose a lot of good people simply because the format of their CV or 
what was the statistic the other day that AI generated job descriptions were 40% more biased than human written ones. So we definitely have a long ways to go on that. So let's pick up on AI then. I mean, I I don't think we could have a technology podcast despite uh, (laughs) the topic not being pure technology without touching on AI, because I think it's fair to say that in every walk of life, in every supporting organization, in every ancillary organization to the core of a business, we're going to get more and more impact from AI. And, And I can't imagine for a minute, based on what we know about historical candidate tracking systems and the amount of data that we are able to extract from CVs and people's experience, when you think about that as a source of training data for some other large language models and other things that we're seeing, I can only imagine it's a matter of time before there's a there's a huge impact of AI, not necessarily for AI jobs, but for AI as you know a, a, an augmented human enabler or perhaps otherwise of, of the talent acquisition process. So James, let, let me touch base with you on that one then. So, I mean, obviously you're used to, far more used to some of the mechanics behind these systems that we talk about than Sarah and I are. Um, you've probably seen the good, the bad, the ugly of, of all of those. Do you imagine a time in the near future where we're going to see more and more impact uh, of AI on, you know, the, the the talent acquisition. I'm going to ask that question in two ways, right? First of all, what's going to happen with, with AI in terms of its impact on talent acquisition as a process? And secondly, you know, what do you think is going to happen in terms of its ability to perhaps lower some of that skill level, knowing that AI as a co-pilot could potentially do some of the more technical work that we would have expected from an individual in in the past. I think from from the 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 TA process perspective, I'm a little bit cautious right now, just in terms of how it looks. Sarah mentioned there, it, it, we need to create or, or enable it to be unbiased uh, and not just as you said the kind of tick box. So I am a little bit cautious and intrigued to see how that develops. I absolutely believe that it can enhance what we're doing from a the language that we use uh, i i think the data and the statistics is out is out there regarding certain applicants will only apply for certain jobs if they meet 10 to 15 bullet points others will will apply if they if they match the job title so i think it can absolutely enhance the way that we communicate externally with candidates from a, a job description, job advert perspective. And also from, if we think from an EMEA perspective, local language, it will help us be able to deliver more succinctly um, uh, as well. And I think there are, there are applications for it to intuitively look at, at candidate, the candidate pool, you know, an ATS, if you imagine how many applicants, you know, apply to, to jobs at, uh, organizations it will it will enable recruiters to access that talent that maybe is hidden because there's just through the, the mountains of data I absolutely think it will enhance the way we work at the moment I to Sarah's point about the the bias nature I'm interested in, and cautious to see how we can alleviate that and create that and then from the co-pilot thing that is again a really interesting point. Will it change the the, the entry level requirements? I, I think it will. From some of the conversations and the roundtables I've been in with with leaders, I think to a certain degree it will. But again, I still think there's some caution around how it is used and where it is used. I know certain countries have outlawed ChatGPT, for instance. So I think there's still a little bit of security around AI. But I do think it will it will open up different candidate pools, it will make companies probably more engaging and be able to access talent in the long term. Absolutely. 
So this is a topic that I, I could talk about forever. I'm sure we could all talk about forever because clearly it's part of you know a challenge that we see every day one way or another, be that inside our organization or, or external to us. But once again, the sands of time have unfortunately run out for the podcast this episode. So what I'd like to do is just finally throw a very quick question at you both. And it's the same question to both of you. Um, quick fire answers are required for this particular one. Going to talk about market conditions. And if we look out, take our crystal ball and give it a good dust off and we look out maybe two to three years from now, what are we going to see? What have we seen in the last 12 months? You know, was it a result of COVID? Was it a result of, you know, folks uh, over-provisioning the talent pool historically and now recalibrating it? You know, we've seen quiet quitting. We've seen the great resignation, all these kinds of things. What's going to happen two to three years from now? I'll throw it to you first, Sarah. You know, I think what we saw was very much a correction of the market. We needed a lot of digital skills thrown at the market very quickly. And there was historically a lot of investment in various kinds of technology companies. And as we see that market shift from a very cloud-centric sort of market into something else that's just evolving. So I think we'll see that things shift. You know, we're going to need more AI engineers on the market and things like that. But I do think fundamentally it was just a shift and that ultimately we're going to get better and things are going to get better because of AI. But we also know that in terms of cognitive load, humans can only achieve so much. So I think if we do really want to achieve this kind of next level of science and discovery and innovation, we very much need AI and things like Copilot and these tools that are going to really elevate things. I don't get a very doomsday sort of vibe from what we've seen over the past six to 12 months. I agree. I think I think you'll see the next generation of workers using the Copilot analogy, working with AI also the way in which we work, the way in which we communicate, I think we still need to, the human-centric approach will will still prevail because as humans, we, we, we crave interactions. But I do think you'll see the next generation of workers and how AI can complement that and remote work forces, communities being built across the globe is how I see it in the next two, three years. Well, Sarah, thank you for being my co-pilot on this episode as usual. Pleasure as always. And James, Thank you for joining us. Fascinating insight from a recruitment professional and uh, really appreciate you giving up your time to uh, to join us. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And with that, I'd like to wrap up today's episode of Cloud Navigator, where we lead C-suites in the cloud journey. Hope you've enjoyed today's episode. And this is the HashiCast podcast dedicated to empowering C-suite executives as you navigate the complexities of cloud adoption. And we'll see you next time. HashiCorp. Get the latest episodes automatically in your favorite podcast app. Just click follow or subscribe and find out more at HashiCorp.com. 